This is a Federal News Network podcast. The Senior Executives Association, which represents the government's highest ranking career officials, is especially glad the Merit Systems Protection Board has a quorum of two members. The Senate confirmed them a couple of weeks ago, ending five years without a quorum. The association's director of policy and outreach, Jason Breifel, joins me now. And Jason, let me ask you this. Is this a tempest in a teapot or does this small, obscure board actually have some sort of gravitational effect on the proper operation and efficiency of the government, do you think? Well, I think it's the latter. The MSPB is the core of the merit system. It's a central part of these different agencies, including the Office of Personnel Management, the Federal Labor Relations Authority, the Office of Special Counsel, that help make sure that the government treats its employees properly, that the government follows the law and the rules on its own workforce. And the MSPB is the agency that makes sure that the government treats its employees right, because a government that treats its employees right and follows the law is a government that treats its citizens right. And that's why these protections are in place in the first place. That's why we have a merit system in this country and decided that that was so important for our democracy way back in the late 1800s. And there's also an important issue I think maybe hasn't been as discussed as much, but for the five years that there has not been a board or only one member, Mark Robbins was there for a couple of years, the administrative judges were operating pretty much on their own. And just from an internal sense, do you think a board can be kind of a governor on that engine? Absolutely, Tom. It's a really critical issue and one that I think is underappreciated. Administrative judges need supervision. They need that leadership, and they need that leadership from Senate-confirmed officials that the president has nominated and have gone through that vetting process. I know that our friends over at the Government Accountability Project have documented that Whistleblower decisions in front of AJs have not been going so well in these past five years. And we think that having a board in place to oversee and remind those AJs of the things that they need to be paying attention to is absolutely critical to the vetting process and the adjudicative process. Because if you look across government, lots of agencies for different missions have administrative judges or administrative law judges, as the case might be. And some of the caseloads of those groups are orders of magnitude larger than what is faced by the MSPB. But in all cases, there is that element of rolling the dice with respect to which judge you're going to get. And that's one of the challenges, I think, across government is consistency in how administrative judges and ALJs go about their work. So I would think that the board would be crucial in that process. Absolutely. Like I said, setting the standards maintaining those standards, communicating that out to those folks who are deciding at that first level, that administrative judge or the administrative law judge. And, you know, as a matter of our constitutional system, having these Senate confirmed officials, the board members in the case of the MSPB overseeing and being that next level of review, if someone wants to appeal the decision, hey, I don't like what this individual AJ thought, I want to take it to a full board and have my chance there. These are rights and process that Congress enshrined into law for a reason. And one of the questions is, you know, how they'll dispose of that 3,600 or whatever it is, case backlog of appeals of the judges that the board itself will have to decide on. And one way suggested is, well, take the most cut and dried cases first. And maybe you could give us an example of what might be a cut and dried case of an adverse action, like someone brought a gun to work and shot a hole in the ceiling. Or is it more subtle than that? And what might be a more difficult type of case? 
The two new board members walking into the situation, they have the benefit of the first level staff analysis in these case files. So they're not going to be walking in blind, but it is their job as board members to take the time to make the decision on their own. And so I would imagine, and and we heard in testimony when the nominees were before the committee from Tristan Levitt, who has been working there as the chief administrative officer of the agency in his role as the general counsel, that prep work has been done. And so I think we can expect that there are cases that are those cut and dry, slam dunk, something clearly happened here and someone clearly was wronged. And we need to reverse this right away. And we can review this file and we can agree with that initial staff council review. Other cases that may be much more meaty, they're going to require more work. They may affect consequential and precedential matters of law. Maybe they're going to wait until that there's a full complement of three board members to address those weightier issues. Is there an example that comes to mind of something in the past that was precedential, that is not presidential like the White House, but setting a precedent that the board had to deal with? So obviously, without a uh, quorum these past years, these kinds of decisions haven't been made in some time. But what we have seen is in the federal courts more broadly, for example, cases related to the implementation of the new VA accountability laws. And some of those cases have been sent back on remand into the MSPB because it was found that processes or protocols might not have been followed properly. So I do think that we might see some further maturation on some of these issues where Congress has been tinkering with civil service reform laws and usually focused on a specific agency that a full board may be able to weigh in on and in which the higher level courts sent back for their review and when a board could tackle that. So those could be lurking in that list of 3,600, whereas others would be someone carrying cash out of the office safe and trying to take it down to their car. Absolutely. We're speaking with Jason Breifel. He is the Director of Policy and Outreach for the Senior Executives Association. And talking about the SEA itself, I mean, some of the SEA members are the ones that are likely to be before the board because it's not the union bargaining unit members that go to the MSPB. They've got their forum over at the Federal Labor Relations Authority. So it's people SEA bound or in the SES that are most affected here. Absolutely, Tom. That's so true. And it's a really important distinction that this is the forum for primarily all non-bargaining unit employees in the federal government. This is the place that Congress designed for them to enforce their rights. And that's why it's been a top priority for the Senior Executives Association to restore a quorum so that agencies can benefit from the finality of the decisions that they put forward. You know, agency actions are held up 80 plus percent of the time at the MSPB. But in those 15, 16 percent of cases where the agency got it wrong, you know, that employee deserves relief, too. And that's why the board is there to create a record and to adjudicate this. And it was frankly very dispiriting and discouraging, you know, to have this lack of quorum go on for so long and to see the Senate appear so dismissive of the consequences for what it meant for our government and the employees who work for it. And what do you think took them so long? Because those people were, there were appointees during the Trump administration and that never got acted on. And it took well over a year into the Biden administration to get it together. What do you think caused the Senate to act now? It's hard to say. You know, my guess is the civil service isn't really much of a priority for Congress. 
I don't think that that would necessarily surprise listeners of this station to hear very much. And then politics. You know, where does this issue fall into the power struggles and battles over how to use the Senate calendar and move nominees through that's ongoing between Leader McConnell and Leader Schumer? And so when you put those things together, how important is this to an administration? How important is this to Congress? What other issues are on Congress's plate or particularly the Senate's plate? It's kind of just fallen down. And I think that there's a lack of appreciation in Congress of what this means, because now that we do have a board back up and running, cases are going to start moving. Stuff's going to happen. That's going to have implication on the time of employees working in agencies. And in some of these cases, when an employee was wronged and might be put back to work, some agencies are going to be cutting huge checks for back pay and potential attorney's fees in some cases that might move through. And whether or not Congress connected the dots between their inaction on these nominees and budget implications that may affect the agencies that they care about and oversee later, I doubt it. I highly doubt it. But if the ratios hold, about 2,900 of those 3,600 cases that are pending will be disappointed. Yeah. And again, that means the system is working. At least those people had an opportunity to have their, you know, kind of justice weigh in on their issue and an impartial board that's designed to adjudicate these matters and, and give them their day in court. That's what these 3,600 people have been deprived of for all of this time. Jason Breifel is Director of Policy and Outreach at the Senior Executives Association. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me, Tom, and thanks for covering this important issue. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on your schedule. Subscribe at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome, and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader, and what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, The first person, personally, was my mom. Uh, She was a single parent, and what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, She was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, We were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing, we were in regular housing, the people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while, although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she 
worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she would always manage to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Hmm. I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, uh, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated. Uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we made our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, and that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, and it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly Black women and certainly gay Black women, uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka, so I'm 
fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so Black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a Black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a signal effect of what other people are going to expect as Black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the, expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience, and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and often times based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, uh, interview, and it you were amazing. And it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. Want more ways to show your good side to the world? Donate plasma at a Griffles Center and join thousands of donors who are helping to save lives. Receive up to $1,000 your first month. Learn more at grifflesplasma.com. You made it. Here. Finally. Checked out of office to check into the sweet views of that place you've always wanted to go. You know the one. It's nice. Even the kids like it. This place is so cool. And they never like it. Mom, can we go to the pool? Look at that. Not even asking for the Wi-Fi. When you're with Amex, it's not if it's going to happen, but when. American Express. Don't live life without it.